HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. You're listening to Item 13, an African food podcast, and I'm your host, Yom Akuaku. Every week, we'll delve into the delicious world of African food, including chefs, curators, and bloggers. Here's the show. I'm so delighted, so, so delighted to have Ifya, Ifya Amwaku, um, who is the Canadian African on Instagram and has a blog by the same name. We're going to be talking all things vegan and some other cool, interesting stuff related to that. Um, welcome to the show, Ifya. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to have you on. And one of the reasons I am is that, you know, although, you know, we're going to talk about your vegan lifestyle, I think there's, there's really more to the work that you do online that touches a lot of different things that I don't see consistently among other um, content creators in the vegan space. And so... I'm excited to not only just touch on, on uh, you know, what, what it means to be vegan and Ghanaian or African, but also all the implications for that in different spheres. Um, so let's start by you telling us a little bit about you, if yeah, who you are, where you're based, whatever you want to tell us. <laughs> yeah, so um, I describe myself, okay, so... My name is Ifia, um, as Yom has mentioned. I live in Toronto, Canada with my family. I, By day, I am a second-year PhD student, um, still trying to figure out what exactly my thesis is going to be on. Um, and then my hobby slash school decompressor is my blog that I run, um, The Canadian African. And on my blog, I talk a lot about veganism and how it pertains to maintaining one's culture within this whole vegan lifestyle and also challenging my audience to think about just think about things beyond just the food on their plate and how things got to their food and how um, just thinking about the world as a global village and how we interact with food, just depending on who we are, our ethnicity, culture, and so forth. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's 
basically it. <laughs> <laughs> that's basically it. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I love your page. Like I, I have I have been off of Instagram and just online in general, you know, because mm. life. <laughs> yeah, and um. I always come back, you know, every time I come back, I, you're, you're one of the pages I go to consistently because I'm like, oh, I'm sure she has a viewpoint or something interesting that she's going to point out that will get me thinking. So, um, like I told you offline, I've been wanting to have you on for so long. So I'm excited to chat and delve into to all of that good stuff. Um, before we get into it, though, your PhD program, you say you're in year two. How many more years to go? Um, it depends, but usually it's a five-year program. Yeah. yeah. So, Jeez. yeah, <laughs> I cannot imagine being in school again. Kudos to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. All right. So let's get into it. So how, how and when did you start your journey into veganism and why I should say? So how, how, when, why? Um, okay. So when is the first part, the easiest part to answer? Um, so it was July, like, I think 7th or 8th or 9th. And I know this date because I think I wrote it down in a journal. I had just gone to see my my family doctor and I was on my way home. And I was like, the path that I'm taking right now with my health is not good. And then around the same time, I was just trying to find something to watch on Netflix. And I came across um, Cowspiracy. So it's a very, it's a environmental based um, documentary, and it was talking about the um, the animal agriculture. So, for someone like me who's always been interested in sustainability, I've been in clubs since you know high school, middle school. It just, I just felt that if I was really about this sustainability life, I probably need to make some changes. And then, obviously, as I mentioned, like I was. I went to have a conversation with my doctor. Um, that was in my first year of undergrad, and I was just not the healthiest person. So I was like, okay, this is definitely going to be an opportunity, not for me to just change my health mindset, but also, like, I taught the talks. So I might as well also walk the walk when it comes to sustainability. Mm-hmm. And then that, that was the beginning of all of it. Wow, that's I'm always impressed by people that come on and maybe maybe health is really what what will push me eventually into healthier eat healthier eating. Although I have been I have been better <laughs> these days. But I think every time I I talk to people who come on or just in general, you know, their decision to go into a healthier food lifestyle, whether it's keto or veganism or vegetarian, whatever it is, has almost always been driven by a health challenge, which that might be, you know, a thought for another discussion, but it's, that's always, that's interesting to me. That's an insight that I think is interesting. Um, Yeah. Cool. All right. So in terms of getting into that, you know, so you figured out that, okay, you need to do this. Um, but, but you're from, you know, you're here with your family, you're from Ghana. How does that then impact like the foods that you're used to from a cultural perspective? And then even just from a home, you know, home comfort, like food perspective, what are some of the, I should say maybe specifically, what are some of the challenges you faced in the context of like African or Ghanaian food, maybe or African food in general for being a vegan. And I shouldn't just say challenges, like make it sound like it's 
Yeah, um, I think that I get messages here and there by people asking how is that I was able to do this in an African household. And honestly, I think my parents are very, very supportive. They're not Mm -hmm. your typical Ghanaian household in the sense that um, like there's very regimented um, approaches to cooking and eating. Mm -hmm. Because before I went vegan, like when my mother goes to go and buy um, groceries, she would ask me and my sister what we need because we were all cooking for ourselves. Everyone's schedule was very different. Mm -hmm. Um, So that alone, they were not concerned that I was going to, uh, like my mom would have to now take into consideration what I eat for um, just because I was just cooking myself. And I think that they are already aware that I'm the type of person who will do a lot of research and I'm not going to come to something lightly. And so for me in my household, like I think that there was a really big shift in my plant, my vegan journey, because when I went vegan, it was very much like the salads and the smoothies and those very Western ideas of healthy food. So that was what I was starting out from the beginning. And then here and there, my mom will make me jollof rice. Like I wouldn't ask her to do it. She just did it because out of the goodness of her heart. So I I was very lucky. And then also my mom told me that like when she was growing up, her grandmother did not eat any meats. Yeah. So my mom, my parents are from the Ashanti region. Um, For people who are not too familiar with like the Ghana geography, it's very much in the forest. Um, And um, my, their general, like their day-to-day eating, they were not the most well-off. So meat was not a big part of their diets. It was very little amounts of um, bush meat that they caught or fish. But except for that, it was very much just plantains, yam, some kind of sauce, and then you're on your way. Um, So for my parents, it wasn't a big shock because this is something that they have been exposed to or very familiar with, but they were just, obviously the word vegan was not a thing. Um, So yeah, it was those combinations of things. And I always tell people that I have it lucky because my parents, the type of parents I have and the um, cooking environment in our household made it very easy for me to transition um, and to eat a vegan diet and not have too many concerns from family members about if I'm getting enough protein, if I'm getting enough this or that, um, just because of how our family was was set up. Um, and then for me, as, as once I went vegan and then I started to notice that my food was just too bland, I started to explore and I was asking my mom a lot of questions what they were eating as kids because obviously they were not eating a lot of meat. Mm -hmm. So that was how I started to build my repertoire when it came to veganizing my Ghanaian food. But that didn't really happen until a little later after I made the decision to go vegan. Yeah. yeah, so that is all interesting to me. And we'll talk a little bit about this later on in, in the show, the connection of this idea of veganism and one, it being tied to privilege or it being also tied to specific demographics, especially in the US, let's say, or in the yeah. West. Um, well, when you hear vegan, 
there's a certain connotation around that. So that even though for me, like when I started to learn about like, you know, vegan, I should say vegan food, not, not the lifestyle and Mm -hmm. not the lifestyle specifically to me, I was like, Oh, that's not that difficult. A lot of our foods on the base of it, you know, are vegan or can be vegan. Right. Just by Mm -hmm. making little tweaks. So it didn't sound so like, out of out of the the world or out of of reach even, mm-hmm. um, but then when you start going into and we'll talk about that later. But when you start going into certain spaces, and I'm talking about here in the U.S. and and in and in the West in particular, in Canada and in other places, it you find vegan foods, restaurants, eateries, whatever, with a certain aesthetic, number one, and also in certain spaces where it doesn't feel as approachable. It's just, Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting to me too. Um, anyway, so let's go to your platform, like in terms of building it. So, you know, you, you, you figure this out for yourself, your family is on board. Um, how do you then get to the point where you decide to build out, not this, just this platform, but it's a, it's a huge platform and maybe related to that, why you decided to call it the Canadian African and not, I don't know, the yeah, I don't know, something related to veganism, for example. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, okay. The beginning of the platform, so I went vegan in July and then I just decided to start the blog randomly one night in August. I went to talk to my sister. I was like, I want to start a blog. I just wanted something to do that was just not putting me too much into my classes. I was also in a very intense undergraduate program. I just needed a a break. And so I was like, okay, let me start this blog. Like, I mean, veganism was, when I went vegan, there were, veganism was on the come up, but it's not to the extent that it is now. I think now things have blown up. So before I was like, well, like, I don't see many black vegans. Let me try and get into this space. I chose the Canadian African because I actually didn't want to tie it to just food. I was, I, when I started, I wasn't just like, oh, I want to do um, just food. I was talking about maybe like, I wanted to talk a little bit more about my culture. I like I really just wanted it to be a personal blog. Okay. And I was like, well, I've li- I live in Canada. I've lived in a couple of countries in Africa. So if I choose the Canadian Ghanaian, it will not really make sense because <laughs> I spent like formidable years in Tanzania. So it, I, that's how I basically came to that name. And then it just lots and trial and error. Usually people see it now and say that my platform is huge, but I was not blessed by the viral gods in the sense that <laughs> my stuff did not go viral. I have been doing this for almost five years mm. and people are kind of shocked because now you can just open up an Instagram page. If you can get something to go viral, that's it. For me, it was very much like a slow progress. And I really needed that because that was when I was able to try and figure out what exactly can I offer that all the other vegans, because it was starting to get saturated. What, mm. what more can I offer that maybe people will find useful? Because I, I like to learn. So I was like, okay, what would people learn from me? And then that's kind of how my platform evolved really. And 
now we are here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I think you have a very unique viewpoint um, in the, not just in the vegan space, but also in the African food space. So, like, I think you could place yourself probably in different spaces, but not so not just in the um, vegan space, but also in the African food space. I don't think there's anyone that's consistently connecting, not just. Um, you know, our culture and even this idea of veganism, this life, veganism lifestyle, but the connections to like racism and climate change and colonization, right? Like all of these different, like heavy, but important and interconnected topics that I think yeah. you do a really good job of like laying out. Oh, thank you. Um, that gets us thinking about ultimately always what we end up putting on our plate so i think we're at a good point where we will go to break and then when we come back we will delve into some of these topics we'll talk about the idea of cultural appropriation versus appreciation we'll talk about veganism and gentrification which it's an interesting connection that you until you made the connection i actually didn't even really think about it in that way and then we'll also talk about chocolate because there's two Ghanaian girls talking about food. So we'll talk about chocolate too. Okay, so we'll take a break and we will be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth has made specialty cheese in the rolling hills of Wisconsin for more than 30 years. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style Grand Cru cheeses. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise in affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sir Chois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. All right, so we're back from the break. Um, if, you're still, if you're still with me, <laughs> and we're getting ready now to delve into some, I don't want to call them heavy topics, interesting topics, good topics mm -hmm. to get into. So the first one is around this idea of cultural appropriation versus appreciation. I think mm -hmm. this came up a lot. This comes up a lot in different spheres outside of food, obviously, but, but this came up a lot also, I feel like, um, last summer um, as, you know, so-called <laughs> the racial reckoning and as people were trying to involve or show their wokeness in certain ways, I think, there were right and wrong ways to do it. It's an ongoing conversation for sure, but I think a lot of it started to, to rear its head again in different ways last summer. And then through that, just all sorts of different conversations have come up. And what stood out for me in the conversation that you posted, and I, I will reshare this when the episode comes out um, so that you guys see it timely. But I think if you have put together some slides that like really spoke to me, as someone that also creates content in the in the foods in the African food space specifically, so one we'll talk about. Uh, let's let's have you define cultural appropriation and appreciation, and then we'll talk about this intimidation factor. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah. So first, if you want to define what cultural appropriation 
is versus appreciation and then how how you address that and in some of your recipes because you do recipes too from other cultures so yeah. what's the right way to appreciate versus appropriate, appropriate. <laughs> yeah um and you know after you were talking about the whole thing that happened last summer i feel like a lot of us black creators are actually dealing with a lot of the ramifications of the summer of wokeness and amplifying black voices um, to the point that like, for me, I talk about, I talk about cultural appropriation so many times just so people can understand why my platform is there and how they can use my platform. And I don't think that other creators of color are even afforded that opportunity. I mean, not opportunity are, are afforded the, the peace of mind in terms of not having to keep explaining the concept, but basically how I see cultural appropriation, and obviously this applies to different um, spheres, not just food, but also with clothing Mm -hmm. and music and just um, like even lifestyle and hairstyles. But how I see cultural appropriation is that someone goes to take um, in... I will use food as an example because that's the easiest one for me to explain. Um, And so for me, I was so annoyed with a lot of vegan creators creating this African peanut stew. And I saw that it was cultural (laughs) appropriation because you're going to another culture that you are not from. You have not been invited to partake in any aspects of that culture. You are taking that culture and removing it from the cultural context. So for a recipe, let's say that I'm going to make African peanut stew. I don't tell people where I got this recipe, where this inspiration came from, because obviously like someone creating the stew might not have any ties to Africa. So we don't know where this is coming from um, and then might profit off this whole content creation. So for a food blogger that identifies as a white American making this African peanut stew, not providing their readers with any information about where the culture is, what culture influenced this dish, any conversations about the ingredients and why these ingredients are important. And then um, they will be monetizing their blog. So that is culture appropriation in my eyes, just because there's no paper trail and you're also robbing your audience from actually going to see this original culture and experiencing its beauty. So that is what I think culture mm-hmm. appropriation is. And with appreciation, especially for me, even though I'm Ghanaian, I do share recipes from other parts of West Africa. So specifically like Senegal, how I will approach cultural appreciation is that when I talk about these recipes, I tell them I heard about this recipe from Chef Pierre um, Tam, who does Yulili. This is how they prepared the original dish. I thought this was really interesting. So I wanted to recreate it without the chicken. But here is where the original recipe is from. If you want to check it out, check it out. And then I just use that as an opportunity to tell people about this beautiful culture that I have experienced. Mm -hmm. I'm not claiming it as my own. I'm not selling these recipes. I'm just like, here, this is a really cool culture. This is one of their foods. Try it out and learn a little bit more about Senegal. And that's what cultural appreciation is to me. And that is what I hope my audience is getting from when I share my recipes with them. 
I'm saying I'm inviting them to try out Ghanaian food. Here's all this information about this tribe and the ingredients and that when you try my recipes, you are getting to experience that. And obviously you're not going to sell it or claim it as your own. And that is all what the culture appreciation is all about. Yeah. And that's I'm, that's so wonderful that you have like a practical, clear explanation example that people people can then follow on it and use because it can be it can be such it can be a, t- a tough line for people to distinguish. Let's just say, and so like having a clear answer to that, I think hopefully it's helpful for people that are listening. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've definitely had to been, I've been kind of not forced, but a lot of, I get a lot of questions about it. So I've been spending so much time just thinking about making it clear for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So related to that is this idea of this, I, cause I, I came across it as I was looking at your, your um, profile to prepare for the interview. Um, this idea that you know well because one you do a lot of like I, i've said over i feel like i've said this now a thousand times you do a lot of really clear good explanation of what you get into and why there's a lot of research that you do to back up a lot of the things that you say and push and share on your platforms and so one of the things the questions you had posed on your platform um i think or i think there was some engagement around why people go to why people choose to go or not to go to certain African food stores. And I think that one of the consistent feedback that you were you were getting was around the idea that African food um is intimidating. Which was interesting to me. And I and I think I pa- I paused on that that you know that specific description and thought the, your follow-up points and maybe you know what i'm gonna read directly directly from your slides because you put you put this so clearly the first you said intimidating should not be the first word that is consistently used to describe my food intimidating should not be the first word that is consistently used to describe my food and that just i don't know like i'm, I'm gonna get on my own high horse here but that for me, it was like, yeah, especially for someone with a platform who constantly, and I and I kid you not, constantly educates. For someone on your in your audience to say that it's intimidating after all of the work that you do is just wild to me. And then you you went on to share what the implication is, and I want to touch on that. I want to get a sense of where you're going to go now with your platform because this was just about a week ago, or maybe now two weeks, um, where you said. And I, because I don't want to <laughs> misquote you, I'm reading this word for word. You said, sometimes I feel like I'm wasting my time trying so hard to convince people that African food is worth the time and effort. As a black woman with a predominantly white audience, I feel like I have to bend over backwards for them to feel comfortable with my food. And then you go on to say how you'll be reevaluating how you approach this on your platform going forward. And... Oh my God, this spoke to me. <laughs> oh my God, it spoke to me. One, because yes, like you, I've been doing this work for like five, six years. And because of that, I've been lucky to be put in spaces where people have invited me specifically because of my voice and my viewpoint. 
and then hello oh can you hear me yeah i can hear you uh my internet tends to be bad sometimes um okay um sorry where did you lose me just so i make sure i go back um you mentioned that as a black woman you've been invited into and then yes. that was the end. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I've been invited <laughs> into spaces just by virtue of the work that I do, right? Like to say, hey, you know, we are a global food and it's always global, global or international food X thing. And you know, we like, you know, the viewpoint where you're sharing of African food and want to make sure, especially again, this is on the back of the of the woke summer. <laughs> Especially, you know, given everything going on in the world, we know we call ourselves a global black, but we don't have any African representation and we want a voice, want to make sure that we are representing like African food, blah, blah, in this right way possible, in this, you know, in the most authentic, blah, blah, blah way possible. And then you get on to the platform, whatever, whether it's a, whatever it is, conference, discussion, blah, blah, blah. And nobody wants to hear what you have to say. (laughs) At the end of the day, Maybe they'll say, oh, yeah, let's hear what, you know, Yom has to say. But at the end of the day, their initial goal, objective, whatever they go back to in that they're going to focus on North American food or European food because that's the popular food. And it's so frustrating to me because I'm like, why am I here then? What's, you know, what's the point? I, and a lot of times it's because I didn't ask to be here. You asked me. I was sitting in my corner somewhere, you know. And so mm-hmm. when I when I read this from you, I, f- I felt it so deep because I was just like, I can't imagine. And this is for me just being asked to be part of conversations. This is you doing the research consistently, putting and putting out content on on Instagram is no joke, people. <laughs> and so just wanted to hear your take and then where you think you're going based on that sentiment. Yeah. So honestly, as I said, this whole that whole summer thing, I think it, it brought more bad than good. Um, and just now that my page has blown up and I'm hearing like a lot of people are so interested in learning about African food. Well, that's what it I was made to think. Um, and the type of person I am, I guess maybe it's just my my research mentality. I'm always going to go above and beyond to, you know, provide people with details because I'm reading it like how I would like information given to me. But then now I'm also understanding that people are just so unaware about African food in general. And I think that there's so many layers to this conversation. The thought about intimidating, because people say that baking is intimidating because of all of the measurements, but Mm. there is a level to that there's a level to how much that word is used and for it to be overwhelmingly used for my food when and i at this point i have conversations with a lot of other food blogger friends that is not something that they hear as consistently as i feel like i do mm-hmm. and i think that there's just a lot of i think the painful part for me was the conversation a lot of people basically oh sorry um Basically, how this whole thing started out was that I kept getting these comments. It was something that was on the back of my mind. I felt like I was doing show and tell in terms of putting in all of this effort to provide people with so much information about all of the ingredients so that at least if they go to an African store, they know exactly what they're looking for. They're not, I'm not mm-hmm. throwing them into a very unknown environment. Um, but then... I was constantly getting questions about substitutions and questions about, 
oh, this seems difficult. I don't know where to start. Like there was just a lot of fear around my food. And I was thinking that I don't know what else I can do for my audience. But I also feel like just where even though people don't know much about Africa in general as a continent, it's 2021. And this should not be a huge concern, especially with how you know, there's Yawande doing stuff on New York Times. There's a lot of us in this space. And so the question of why does why do people still feel like they don't know anything about African food? Things were just not adding up. And so just thinking about all of these things, that one comment just kind of set me off. And I just really wanted to hear from my audience what exactly was going on. And for me personally, a lot of people, again, were, were concerned about culture appropriation. A lot of them were concerned about gentrification. I also think a lot of it was just misunderstanding on the, cult, the word culture appropriation and gentrification, especially as it comes to my content, because I'm giving you the recipes. I am telling you, you can try it. It's not like I don't see where the culture appropriation came to that. <laughs> yeah. And I just think that there's just a lot of anti-blackness that people have to work through that is not something that it's it's one of those inherent things that people are just not aware of, but it's kind of there in a sense that just using intimidating and all of these concerns, I I asked them where exactly those concerns are coming from. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of people were self-reflecting like, okay, like this is probably something that I have to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, The hardest part for me was when people were comparing African food to Asian food, which I do not stand for. I think Mm -hmm. all cultures have something to offer. I don't think it's fair for people to say that, one group is inviting over another when both have something to offer. I love Asian food and I can see how people can also love African food. And so that whole bringing someone else into the conversation, it just really, it it just sat uncomfortably for me Um, in terms of now understanding all of that and knowing where I will go with my platform. Honestly, I do not know. Mm-hmm. I'm still thinking about it. I A lot of people did send me messages. I think that I'm at a point where I need to put my foot down and just be like, look, this is what West African food is about. I'm not going to keep changing and substituting to make people feel more comfortable, even though they already feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so going forward, I definitely think that I'm just going to keep doubling down on the fact that you need to use these ingredients. A lot of people that I see where people are coming from, Instagram gives you insights on countries and it gives you insights on cities. And I am confident that people also have to understand that Ghanaians and Nigerians are everywhere. We're not a hidden population and the access is there. So I feel like at this point, I need to make sure that people understand that if you want to experience African food, you have to try and go to our grocery stores and support our businesses rather than relying on substitutions that don't really tell the full story of the food. It's like going halfway and it might not even be 
the best halfway with all the substitution. So yeah. I'm still thinking about it. But it really hurts me because I think Yawande mentioned, um, I forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, is called Nolafli. Um, she Nolafli. writes for the New York Times. And she had a whole, she wrote about people questioning about the palm oil and questioning yeah, about substitutions. Mm-hmm. And so it is definitely something that I, I'm noticing a lot more with African bloggers in who have a North American or Western audience. This is something that we have to contend with. And it's very difficult. But one thing I'm thinking about is that hopefully maybe me putting all this work that someone else who comes into this this space later on will not have to force and push as hard as we did. (laughs) Yeah, and it's... I, I, I get the frustration too because um because you bring up Asian food, it's so interesting that like it's not like they're they they pretty Asian food also has some pretty strong and I don't know if that's the that's what people find intimidating about African food, but Asian food has some pretty strong like flavor profiles too, but people are willing to go out there and try it. Um, exactly. And they'll go to the Chinatown and, you know, go to the, you know, the store in the Chinatown to get the one, you know, spicy thing that they need to do to complete the whatever dish they're making. Right. And mm-hmm. even I remember having this conversation on, on another episode where I feel like it's gotten to a point where people are even able to distinguish between like South Indian food and North Indian food and like in China, like Sichuan food versus what, you know, whatever else. Um, where you you think that with all of the education we are doing, even with West African food alone, some of that distinction, you'd love to be able to start to see, right? Because there's so much, especially yeah. like you said, in 2021, <laughs> the very yeah. basic minimum, Google is, Google is your friend. If you Google exactly. all of these people, you'll show up your one day, like all of the people that are doing interesting work in this space will show up. So... Exactly. And I just lastly to add, I obviously understand that there's a lot of history with this, obviously East Asian, Southeast Asian, in terms of Western world's exposure to them and their cuisine, Mm -hmm. it has definitely been longer. However, I don't think that, as you mentioned, like with 2021 and with Google and with the, the fact that there's more of us African bloggers offering so much information that is comparable to what other Asian um, bloggers are offering. Um, it's I think that the, the, there should not be this comparison between us when we're all doing our own separate thing. Yeah, you know? I agree. So, yeah, I yeah. agree. And so somewhat related to is this other idea you brought up the other day around the connection between veganism and gentrification. I want to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Um, so maybe if you want to set the stage for what what that connection is. And maybe yeah. how, let's talk about how that then um, maybe excludes people from, from exactly. wanting to, to, you know feel a part of feeling less welcomed, I guess, or something like that to the vegan lifestyle or even the diet. Yeah. So I, I, it's, it's a very complicated conversation, like everything else in a sense that, you know, like for me, I live a simple vegan lifestyle. My, all the people I follow and I'm realizing that I'm still in a bubble. 
I prioritize following Black vegan creators and people of color. So for us, our notion of veganism obviously is, and we might talk about the whole lifestyle thing, it's really about allowing everyone, allowing people to the extent that they can. So it's not everyone that can go vegan. And we are very aware of that for so many different reasons, but still having the opportunity to make choices that are better for sentient beings, better for the planet, better for their health, um, and recognizing that, you know, people have so many different barriers. However, the predominant thoughts around veganism, you know, how you mentioned at the beginning that vegan restaurants have this certain type of aesthetic, and it's all about like, you know, these expensive organic salads mm -hmm. and <laughs> bowls and which are definitely very whitewashed in the sense that you don't see a lot of cultural foods like that. Yeah. Um, and so that image is something that a lot of people have seen. And I think that something unique that happened in Toronto was that we have a part of the city that was predominantly immigrants and then a company, it's been, it's being gentrified, but as it was gentrified with like, you know, expensive condos with um, upper middle class white uh, millennials moving in, there was a whole bunch of vegan restaurants that were also moving in because, you know, they were coming in with this aesthetic of like the exp expensive salads and things like that. It fits within that model of gentrification. I will say that it's a very small part of what veganism in reality is, um, but that's the predominant thing that people see. So people can definitely use that whole, this lifestyle as a, it's like as a, one of those symbols of gentrification. Um, so yeah, that's where I was seeing the connection and also just reminding people that, you know, accessing food, especially in this climate as, um, people of color, people that experience food apartheid, we have to be cognizant of that when we're having these conversations about just even veganism and the role we play in pushing this aesthetic when that is not even what a lot of people experience. Um, not everyone can a, a, a afford a twenty dollar salad, you know, <laughs> and we don't want we don't want veganism to for people to think that's what veganism is, a $20 salad, when in reality, I'm like, I'm sitting at home eating rice and beans, which is probably like one of the most cheapest things you can eat. Yeah. So that is where, that is where the thought process was coming from. And that's definitely a conversation that we're having a lot more within the vegan space. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting, especially then creating the, the perception that it is only for a certain the vegan lifestyle at least the diet is only for mm -hmm. a certain income level type of you know demographic etc um, yeah especially when i think about it in the context of cultural food right like i think about mm -hmm. for me like com some of the things i consider as comfort food like um Red, red, so like a stewed, what would say, stewed black, black eyed peas, I suppose, and fried plantain, which is yeah. totally, oh my gosh, like just even talking about it, like that, or like a good groundnut soup with, um, with, I don't know, Gary or something, like for me, it would be, and it, it wouldn't even matter the protein, right? Like a very well spiced groundnut soup is like out of this world, heavenly. 
Um, <laughs> so I think about that, right? And then compared to like at twenty dollars, like if I, it's just wild to me how how then like yeah. the exclusionary piece, right? Because then then I think because I don't know that you know people are able to then make the connection that oh, like if I think about it in a Ghanaian context specifically, like oh. My red red could be well if you do not exercise, but like my red red on the face of it could be you know I could do vegan, where the pictures and you know media I see around what vegan is is like um, pale pink, <laughs> you know yeah. yeah you know what I mean with like yeah. copper whatever whatever and like anyway, so I think that connection can be lost because of of how that's that plays out um so we we've talked about veganism being a lifestyle and you talk about it quite a bit i wanted you to touch on that as we start to wrap up the conversation um like what does when you say lifestyle like outside of food what does that what does that mean for you yeah so even when i mentioned that like i went i came into veganism through like sustainability and health I think that throughout mm-hmm. this journey, I've really learned that the premise of veganism is about anti-oppression for all for living beings. So humans, animals, all not, the nine yards in between that. So sentient beings, beings that feel um, pain or have the nervous system. It's a whole scientific thing. Mm-hmm. But the <laughs> lifestyle in this, <laughs> in what, so when I... It's a lifestyle because beyond the food choices I've made, one of the biggest um, ways that people can also explain this is with cosmetics. So for me personally, when I'm buying my makeup, when I'm buying my like the things that I use to clean my face or just just those type of things, I'm also um, considering if there's any animal derivatives in there. I'm also considering like animal testing when it's not necessary for a lot of these Mm -hmm. situations. Um, So these are the things that I'm thinking about. People even go as far to extend it to um, clothing and making sure that they're not buying into fast fashion because, again, the whole process of fast fashion, it's very much taken advantage of people in low-income countries and you know, they're not getting enough to even survive. And a lot of them, some of them, their lives are in danger. Like there was a whole fire that um, killed a number of people in Bangladesh that were in a sweatshop. So some of people go as far to include those points. As I mentioned, I said that not everyone can be vegan, but the intention of it is that to think about your life, the things that you consume, the things that you put your money to, like, how can you think of that in a way that can reduce as much oppression as possible? We live in a capitalist society, so there's going to be some problem somewhere. But whatever, which part that you have more agency over, how can you reduce that impact that you might have on animals, on people, mm-hmm. um, and just living a more, I guess... Ethically, I use that word like very lightly because there's, again, capitalist society. Not a lot of things are ethical. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so whatever you have agency over. And that's why I said not everyone can go vegan because if you're experiencing food apartheid, if you are you are dealing with so many different things and you don't make the choice over what food you eat or you don't have a choice about the clothing you buy, um, then, you know, those things become difficult to 
I'm always aware about that, but that's how I see this whole mm-hmm. vegan lifestyle. Um, there's lots of debates about like to what extent you go with it just because of how our society is set up, but it always comes down to what you are capable of doing. How much can you reduce your impact on other people and animals? So, yeah. Yeah, so That's speaking of it. consumption, let's talk about chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I want us to finally talk about chocolate because, like I said earlier, two, two Ghana girls, we cannot not talk about chocolate. Talk about um, chocolate, yeah. So... For those, I mean, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you should know this. But for those that um, are listening for the first time or because we have so many episodes now, maybe you haven't come across an episode where I've talked about, you know, Ghana and Ivory Coast collectively being the the highest producers of of cocoa and the impact that it has on the country. Like all of the rules around that, we're not getting the most out of our production and all of that good stuff. I, I don't even know if there's a specific episode I can point people to because I think it comes up randomly in some conversations. But <laughs> you know what? I'll put chocolate in the title of this episode so that when, I, when I'm looking for it next time, I'll know it's in this episode. So let's talk about that. Let's lay the land out for people and then maybe talk about from, again, from coming at it from this idea of living, being aware of, you know, what we consume and trying as much as we can the best way we can possible to to cause less harm to the environment and all that good stuff and i should say too for for um our audience um oh i hope i'm right i feel like you 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 have said a couple of times that you belong to a family of cocoa farmers too yep yeah okay yeah, you're right yeah <laughs> okay Good stuff. So let's set the table. First, let's talk about Ghana's production, um, what that means in terms of impact on, on on the farmers, and then any sort of environmental problems or issues along the value chain that people should be aware of as they consume their hot cocoa or a bar of chocolate. <laughs> yeah, and yes, and that the value chain, the the whole process, the the from bean to chocolate bar if you buy chocolate conventionally so nestle or you know like the mars chocolate bars or Mm -hmm. snickers there are so many parts to it um and yes my family my mom my grandmother she has a cocoa farm that she lends out to someone to work on and then yeah so that's actually how a lot of it happens there's a lot of migrant workers that come from up north down that work on cuckoo farms that someone owns and then they get a profit and then someone else works on it. So it's so many more layers. Um, But yeah, Ghana and Ivory Coast are the largest producers of um, cacao. Um, It's really interesting because it's originally from um, the Americas and it is very, it's, it's, it's a complicated process because my grandmother told us like last a couple of months ago that she didn't get anything off the cocoa farm. Like they were kind of cheating her. And basically there are a lot of middlemen that buy the cocoa and then they send it off to um, processors before it even goes into the whole process of making the chocolate. And I put a stat on my page that 80% of all the profit is made by these three giant chocolate um, 
companies you have your nestle's Mm -hmm. your you have your hershey's these are names that people are familiar with and whatever is left trickles down to whoever is on the value chain and unfortunately our countries are corrupt so by the time it gets (laughs) to the farmer the farmer has less than little amounts so then you have these concerns like resulting to so many different unethical practices just so that they can make ends meet. So now you have the conversation of child labor Mm -hmm. and then you have the conversation of now they are, most of the farmers are switching over to a new variety of um, cacao where, so most of the time, like the ones that, the old ones that people use in Ghana, they grow it within an agro forest so in addition to growing the cacao, they're growing their cassava, they're growing the ayam. Oh, it. So yeah. it's within an ecosystem. When you put it in the forest, the forest is the most fertile land, but you're not just growing a monocrop. You're growing other things to sustain yeah. your life. Um, and it's obviously done in smaller scales. But now they're moving over to a higher yielding cacao crop that only yields fruit for a short amount of time compared to the one before that takes longer but it fruits its entire life and in order for the newer one to do well you have to kind of cut the you have to cut the forest because it really depends on sun compared to the other one that depends on shade so now you're starting to see that people will favor it's 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 a lot more deeper than people think Mm -hmm. and when i was talking about mine i was talking about it in regards to sustainability and these people are doing this not just because they just want more yield but it becomes a survival thing yeah it's very different from you know the monocrop of corn and soy in the united states where people are producing more than they need these people are producing it so that they can survive and so it makes it's it's easy for us to sit outside and say that don't don't use that crop. It's bad for the environment. Mm-hmm. It's bad for the for deforestation. But then you also have to think about the people behind all of this. Yeah. Um, and as I said, chocolate is so complicated that the average person is not sitting here looking at two different breeds of cocoa um, plants. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and to tie this all to veganism, it's like right now people are, you know, before people were, when people talk about veganism, it's like, don't, I don't want to eat meat. The animals mm-hmm. are suffering. But now people are thinking about the lives around the foods that we're eating, especially foods that are causing so many issues disproportionately. The person sitting in Switzerland who is the head who is in the head office of like Nestle, they are not too concerned about what's mm-hmm. going on with the, the, the cocoa farmer in Ghana who's right. struggling. Um, and so yeah, that was I, I I am so passionate about this topic just because <laughs> of the family ties. Yeah. But also like the part of Ghana that we're from, my 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 dad's side of the family, they also had cocoa farms. It was basically like a thing everyone did. Um, and right now, like the Ghanaian government says they don't want to export it, but they are not supporting their farmers either. So it's it's very complicated. There's now a whole a rise of direct trade, not just fair trade, because that is also something <laughs> problematic. that is very, com- <laughs> it's very problematic and complicated. 
But now there's also the conversation of like direct trade. So directly from the farm, the farmer to the chocolate bar. But yeah, that's very, 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 very small portion of it. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's so interesting to me. And I know I, I don't want to take, I feel like I've taken so much of your time today, but um, as you were talking, I started to, well, one, I thought like, so what do I as an individual consume? What can I as an individual consumer do? Like, even around this idea of chocolate, right? Like, I mean, you, you know, the, you just said even that fair trade has its problems also, right? So I can't say, okay, I'm going to decide to pick the fair trade brand because then I feel slightly better that there's more, or even direct trade, that there's more going back to the farmer. Um and maybe somewhat related, and this is how we'll wrap up now, I promise. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I keep saying we'll wrap up, I have a, I just keep having more questions. Um, but somewhat related, maybe, or not. But I wanted to also get your thoughts as you were talking. I thought about it, about what you think, like, in the conversation on the climate crisis, mm-hmm. what is the, what your thoughts are on the impact of an individual's contribution to reversing the impact of climate change versus, you know, large organizations or governments, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, using regulation policy, et cetera. Yeah. um, Just to finish off with a chocolate, just Mm -hmm. to give your readers something tangible. Um, So there is, when I put the, when I put my post up, I always invite people to provide resources like mm-hmm. hey like i don't know where to go because obviously as a Ghanaian, i buy my chocolate in ghana from yeah like, so it's it's easier for me but not everyone has that access so i tell people hey like if you know of any direct trade companies and a lot of people were um recommending their instagram handle is food empowerment project it's one word okay. and basically they have an app or a resource where you can check whether the brand, like the brand is within, is not you know, okay. bad for the environment. Um, so if people are interested in finding better sources of chocolate, you should probably check out this page. All right. And um, if you can hear me so. typing in the background, I, I don't know if this will end up on the podcast. If you hear me typing. I'm just typing Food Empowerment Projects. I know to look it up and to include yeah. in the show notes. Um, okay, that's so great. Just, great resource. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, in terms of tying into the climate, this is very. This is a very interesting um, conversation and debate in terms of how we pressure. Um, what is it? Industries and large corporations. Obviously, they play the biggest role in this whole climate crisis. The individual, yes, individuals and capitalism and consumerism is getting so large that one person's impact is huge. However, we are still understanding that, you know, companies are causing the biggest harm. Um, But I also say this just so that people understand that we don't absolve ourselves from trying. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that something that has definitely happened is the the power of people in terms of making swift changes. You can even see this with the whole almond milk and you can see this with like, you know, the non-dairy milks. Now, all of a sudden, so many people consume that and there's a huge shift towards those plant-based options 
that dairy mm-hmm. milk consumption is going down. And obviously, like cows and animal agriculture, which huge corporations own, you know, now there's this concern that like people might not be, you know, into supporting those businesses and those huge huge food industries and so you know we as individuals have a role to play obviously we need to put pressure on our governments to um, have more and better regulations on large companies but you know it doesn't absolve the individual from the power the collective power that we have Um, so yeah that's why you know like people choose to live try more plant-based diets if they can't fully go vegan you know, mm-hmm. eating your meatless Monday, those little things, they add up because one yeah. human being in the at the end of the year, you know, we still consume a lot of things and it might be a small blip, but that small blip is still something to consider. Uh, so yeah, I always try and mm-hmm. yeah, I always try and make sure that people are aware that look like we might not be the biggest polluters, but we still have a role to play. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, great. I, I'm i going to stop here. I had just a, full, a couple of follow-up questions, but I feel like we could be here and chat like all day. So <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up. And hopefully, uh, hopefully once this whole Delta situation is done, I'm hoping to be able to do a live show at some point. And then maybe we can have an audience and interact and, and delve a little bit deeper into some of these topics. Because... Um, these are all really important, really interesting. And I like the way you see the interconnectedness of different things um, that actually, honestly, I wouldn't have thought about if, if I hadn't come across your your summary of it online. So I appreciate, you. I appreciate you and the work that you do. Thank you. Um, so we usually wrap up here with a quick rapid fire segment. Um, oh, I'm excited. <laughs> I will do. Yeah. Uh, most of these, I feel like at this point, if you're coming on as a guest and you've heard a few episodes, like you should know all of these by now. So it shouldn't be, <laughs> be too difficult, but, um, let's go. Um, first one, are you a morning person or a night person? Um, I, technically both, but I'll say morning. <laughs> what do you mean by technically <laughs> I am very unproductive during, like, in the middle of the day, but I'm oh, very productive okay. early in the morning and late at night. So, oh, both. Wow. but I well, will choose right. morning that's... because <laughs> I'll choose morning because I have to choose one. So, <laughs> <laughs> morning person. Okay. And then, would you rather lose your sense of smell or taste? Um, I'll lose my sense of smell. Okay. And then if you could live on one dish for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh my God, that's a hard choice. Um, plantains and beans. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and then <laughs> the last one, what's your favorite? Maybe you just answer that. What's your favorite <laughs> vegan, vegan African food and why? Okay, I'll give you variety since I've already mentioned one. Um, <laughs> I will say Hausa Kuku and Kusi, yeah. which is a very, very popular Ghanaian breakfast. It is a fermented millet porridge with a fried like black bean fritter. Just in case people are not familiar with what it is. Yeah. You can get it every morning anywhere. And it's traditionally vegan. So you... It, it, I love it. I get it every oh, single day so when I'm in Ghana. Yeah. So, yeah. 
No, I need to go figure out where I can find some hamuzake. Yeah, and it's a, it's a spice. It's a, it's also has a kick to it. So it's yeah. really good. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Ifia. Uh, it's been such a pleasure chatting, and like I, this conversation is everything I thought it would be and more. So I appreciate your time, your expertise, your skill, and what you offer to our community. Um. Thank you so so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, I'm, I was just so excited when I got the email. <laughs> Yay! Thank you for listening to Item 13, an African food podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. To keep up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Item 13 Podcast. Item 13 is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.